our loving and gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus. We are waiting for you. We adore you. We have a sense of you and who you are that cannot be put into our human words. But we know that you can bridge that gap. And so we wait for you in the way the Bible uses the word. We wait for you with a sense of absolute hope and confident hope. Not wishing, but actually believing that something's going to happen. Something's going to happen with the things we bring in here in life in our lives and our families and where we come from and our workplaces. Yes, and we believe that something's going to happen in our culture and in our world. And as we see why you came to the earth today, we just ask that you would impress upon every single one of our hearts that our waiting is nearly over. But also, we're waiting for you here to be here this morning. We thank you that we've experienced you and we've sensed you already. And now we're just asking and waiting for you to impress upon our hearts the word that you brought us here to hear. We thank you that you are one who loves to speak with us and loves to relate to us and just flat out loves us. And for that, we give you all the praise and we love you back, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. Well, we're uh, in this series called A Very Timely Christmas. Ben started it last week. And what we're looking at is we're looking at the times which Jesus came, in other words. We're looking at the time, what went into it, what's going on, with a, hopefully an understanding um, and coming to an understanding of what it means in our time. That if we can really understand why he came and how and what it, what it worked out, that it will change how we see things going into Christmas, going out the door today, and that's what we're trying to do. And, and today I'm going to try to do something that honestly, you know, just between you and me, I'm not sure I can pull it off. We'll find out later. What I'm trying to do is get all of us to set aside the worries and the concerns and the expectations and what am I going to get for Christmas and who am I going to get what for Christmas and set all that aside not that any of that's bad, it's all good, it's part of your life, but set that aside for a moment and kind of raise us up to a higher plane and to try and see what God was up to and therefore what he is up to and to see all of this from his perspective a little bit. And we can't completely have God's perspective, obviously, but he does want us to trust him enough to set aside things for a moment from time to time and honor him by rising up to that higher plane and letting him bring us up there to show us, hey, this is really the ultimate thing that I am up to in your world and in your life and in your family and in your church, right? That makes sense? That's what we're going to try to do today. Because I think that's the reason, the primary reason, besides saving people from their sins, that Jesus came to earth. And we're going to see that in, in the scripture today, a writing from the Apostle Paul. Um, and, and so really what the Bible says is, is when, when we do that, when we, when we say, God, I want to see things from your angle, not from down here where I feel like things such a struggle sometimes. I want to see things from what you see. That's actually honoring him because you're asking God to show you what's really real. You're actually asking God to show you what he thinks, what he feels, what he knows to be true. It's honor. 
And what's interesting is this week, this particular week, even, you know, I, I was preparing this sermon even before the, this happened, but we had an excellent chance to see honor in our country this week because we had a state funeral for George H.W. Bush, the president uh, that died uh, a week ago. And um, what's interesting is the United States has only had 19 state funerals. But now we see on the national stage this, this funeral, and it was all about honoring that person, right? And, and, and what's interesting about funerals, by the way, this is a little pastor insider talk, and, and, uh, is that everybody kind of comes into them when we're sad, and, but we're, we're joyful to remember the memories of our friends and family, right? But I can tell you this for a fact, almost every funeral, in the midst of our grief, there comes this whoomp time, where you kind of hit bottom, but it's a soft landing, and you suddenly realize, you know what? This experience is making me realize there's bigger things and more ultimate things to think about. And that's what happened, I think, to some degree on a national scale. We kind of stopped fighting for a while and had this national funeral. Did you notice that? But there was one thing that happened in the midst of this uh, remembering of uh, George H.W. Bush that I thought was the perfect example of honoring somebody. And maybe you saw this, maybe you didn't. It went viral, it was all over the place. And it didn't happen at the funeral, it happened before the funeral at, in the rotunda of the Capitol when Senator Robert Dole was wheeled in his wheelchair, he's 95 and bound to a wheelchair now, came up to the casket of his friend and everybody else cleared the space. He had a little argument with his caretaker. And I wanna show you what happened. Take a look up here. World War II war hero, giving honor to his World War II war hero and president friend. That's honor right there. And that took some guts, actually, to do that in front of all the TV cameras that went around the world. And it got me to thinking, how often do I do that for God? Not just salute him, but show him honor. Stop what I'm doing and up to long enough on the way to work or, you know, at work or you know, in the midst of the day to say, God, I just am so thankful and I just want to really know what you think of this. I just really want to honor you and say thank you for what we're celebrating at Christmas time and so forth. How often do we do that? Because here's the thing, it's so easy to get kind of stuck down here, isn't it? It's easy, even in our day, I mean, you know, when there's so many other distractions especially, to kind of get stuck in those, right? Even at this time of year. Um, and, and I started thinking about that this week, about what it is that holds us sort of down on terra firma and keeps us from seeing what God really wants us to see. And uh, I thought about uh, one of the curses that has been ringing in my mind, one of the curses in uh, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. And I started thinking about this years ago when I started to be, be a homeowner. Because in the midst of those curses, God turns to Adam and says, because of sin, because sin has entered the world, 
Now you're going to have to work the land. And one of the things he says is there's going to be weeds and thistles. And I'm pretty sure there's moles in there, but I can't find them in the Hebrew. But that's kind of, oh, just about the time you get those suckers taken care of, you got to go back and beat them down again. And, and God, you know, says, I don't want you living in those all the time. I want to get you up, get you up and out of the weeds. And when we do, when we say, God, yeah, we want that too, and we let them do that, and he let them lift us up, it's a way of honoring him and saying, God, you know you're right. You were right all along. I need this. I need to see things from your perspective, from your way of thinking. And what's interesting is, is maybe you didn't know this, but the Apostle Paul wrote a little piece about the um, birth of Jesus. He wrote his own Christmas story. I mean, it's all the same stuff, but he wrote his, his kind of take on it. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you just thought that it's just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who do that, specifically Matthew and Luke. But, but no, Paul, the apostle, in, Gen, in Galatians chapter 4, you can turn there if you've got your Bible. Don't worry about it if you don't. We'll have it on the screen. But Paul, the apostle, in Galatians chapter 4, writes about the birth of Jesus on earth. And, and here's the interesting thing. A couple of interesting things. There are actually scholars in the world today, historians and scholars, they call themselves theologians, but they don't believe in Theo. They don't believe in God. Okay? Why they study the Bible, I have no idea. But they do, but even, what's interesting is even those people, even the skeptics, even the disbelievers, even they agree that Paul wrote this, what we're about to read. And everybody agrees that he wrote it in about 52 or 53 AD, one of Paul's earlier letters, earliest letters. And so what that means is, and this could be interesting to you today too, if you're kind of skeptical and you're not sure what to make of the Bible and so forth and so on, if that means that 25 years after Jesus was crucified, Paul writes this about what happened. 55 years after Jesus was born, Paul writes this about what it means, which that's like 1963. I can't remember that, but I mean, I'm sure some of you maybe can. Actually, I was in the first grade, but there you go. And, and, and you, it's kind of like, you know what? That's not that long ago. And, and as we look at this, you realize that Paul, who was a man of great uh, intelligence and great uh, education, and he was living in a time when there were people who witnessed these events. Very likely, he met Mary, the mother of Jesus, and we know for a fact that she was there that night. And, and if he, she didn't, he didn't meet Mary. If she had died before he made it over there, we know for a fact that he met John, who was the the, the young lone disciple at the foot of the cross that Jesus looks down and says, "Take care of my mother," and he did for the rest of her life. And so Paul has firsthand evidence and information of what actually happens. And so that makes it really significant about what he's going to tell us. And what's interesting is, is, is Paul starts off by pulling way, way, way back up out of the weeds and to talk about what's really going on in this world and what was really going on in this world when Jesus came and put feet to terra firma, okay? So start with me at verse 3. I'll read the first phrase, and I've got some explaining to set this up, but we'll read the first phrase in Galatians chapter 4, verse 3. So also, also when we were under age, we were in slavery. Now, this is something that we maybe don't understand because we're not Roman people. We're not ancient Romans. Uh, Paul is writing this in a time when 
children were not considered full human beings. In other words, until you became mature, which you should put that in quotes because even the Caesars and the senators and the leaders of the Roman Empire weren't exactly mature. But anyway, they, they, when, when you become of age, then you could inherit all the power, all the prestige, all the wealth. Like if you were a child and you were born into a wealthy household, you basically had no rights as a child. You had the same amount of rights as a slave or a servant. And that's what Paul's saying, is when we're, when we're stuck in our sin and we haven't been redeemed by, by God, then we are stuck in a situation where we've got no rights whatsoever until we come of age, until we, we come to, to know him. He's using that sort of as a metaphor, and that's what he means by this. But that raises the question is, what is it that's keeping us in slavery? Here it is. We were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. What is that? Well, first of all, you need to understand something that is the main modus operandi of Satan and his ilk. The main modus operandi of the devil and his ilk is that they take something good and they corrupt it. They take something like the law of God, the morality that God blessed the world with, and the Ten Commandments, and all the morality that he gave, saying, look, I created you, I know how your life works best, these are the things you need to think about. This is the way the world works. And Satan took that and he twisted that, didn't he? Right up at the beginning when the serpent came and talked to Eve. Twisted it and made a counterfeit. And that's what the elemental spiritual forces of the world are. That Satan twists it and he, he continues to twist it. Every time a culture comes along, every time a society comes along, he turns all the morality stuff especially on its head and upside down and sideways and creates a whole different counterfeit system and fools people into thinking that that system's going to work for them. That's what this talk. In other words, another way to say it is you could say that the elemental force, spiritual forces are the weeds that we get stuck in in our lives and we can't seem to get up above them and look out over them. And Paul's saying, look, that's the kind of situation you were in. I've been listening to a, a new podcast. It's called This Cultural Moment. It's by... Um, uh, actually, it's into season three now. It's by John Mark Comer down at Bridgetown and a, a pastor from... Um, uh, Australia, Adelaide, Australia, named Mark Sayers, and uh, it's very, it's fascinating to me. I mean, the Sayers guys are quite a, a thinker, and, and uh, this week I listened to one that talked about the system of this world, which is essentially what this elemental forces business is. You see, one of the illusions that we live with today in this culture is that somehow we're free, that we're completely autonomous, that we're autonomous individuals, my truth, my truth, your truth, your truth. I'm totally, completely free, but then we look around and we realize everybody's doing the same thing that we're doing. We're all kind of stuck into the sameness. We all still have the same broken lives. We all have the same broken relationships. We all have the same busted sense of sexuality and all that kind of stuff, right? The illusion is, is that you can live without a system. And Satan knows you can't live. It's, it's not a choice between system or no system. It's, a, it's a, a choice between good system, bad system. That's the reality. And Paul is saying the elemental forces of this earth, the bad systems, got us stuck and trapped just before Jesus shows up. And that, that's the world in which we live, if you will. And we're sort of trying to, you know, in, in the West, in Europe and United States and in uh, Australia, we're kind of trying to, for example, share our morality with the rest of the world. And if you notice, the rest of the world doesn't want it. Because people are kind of coming to the end of saying, oh man, this is so, 
so wearisome. In fact, in that podcast, they mentioned a, a study that just kind of briefly mentioned it, and I went and looked it up. It's called the More in Common Study, and this is not a Christian study. This is a, a secular study that studied Europe, Australia, United States, and just tried to get a pulse on how f- people are feeling in this Western culture today. And one of the interesting things I noticed, they found this out. They, 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 as they kind of did this survey and they did this research and they put it all together in the, in the last year or so, they discovered that in the Western world, United States, Europe, and Australia, there are activists on the extreme right and there are these activists that are angry on the extreme left too. But then there's this giant majority in the middle. And what they discovered is they needed to give them a name like this. They call us the exhausted majority. (laughs) We're tired of all this. And I think Paul is trying to put his finger on the exhausted majority. I'm tired of the rancor. I'm tired of the anxiety and outrage. I'm tired of all that. Don't you think that kind of describes us? Even here in enlightened Portland. But here's the thing that just struck me as I was thinking about that and reading that study. I don't know. This, this is speculation, okay? This isn't from the Bible that, you know, this is going to happen right now. Okay. But it's okay. We're in church. We can do this. Um, what if God has planned it that way, just like he planned it when Jesus was born for you and I to be here, that possibly this is the best time to be a Jesus follower in recent history? Because what if God's about make his move? Because one of the things you read as you read the New Testament is you begin to realize, whoa, you know, um, every time the world seems exhausted and worn out and they're struggling and they're looking for something else, that seems to be when God shows up. That seems to be when the great awakenings happen. Could it be? When you're down in the weeds, it seems impossible. But look where Paul goes with this, because that seems to be where he goes. He seems to say God has a calendar. Did you know that? Look at this, verse 4. But when the set time had fully come. Let's stop right there. That sounds like a calendar to me. Does that, did you know that God had a calendar? Here, here, and, and that Jesus' birth was on it, and it had fully come? What if you and I are on God's calendar? I mean, think about that for a second. Because you begin to think about, well, Paul, did, did Paul say this anywhere else? And the answer is yes, he said it two other places in his writings. He uses the analogy of God having a set time for things. And then you start asking, well, where did God get that? Or where did Paul get that? Where did he think? And guess what? As you look at the Gospels, there's one place. And, it, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they, are, they were written at different times. Mark was the first one written. It was the earliest one written. It was written not, not too uh, much uh, earlier, right around the time of, um, of the writing of Galatians, actually. And, and Mark was written in that early time frame. And in chapter 1, the first time Jesus speaks, here's what Jesus says. After John had been put in prison, that's John the Baptist, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news and get lifted up out of the weeds, you exhausted majority. I I added that next last part. Maybe that's where Paul got it. The time has come and God says, okay, now. All right, now. And, And you begin to look at that and you begin to, whoa, Okay, that was with then. What were the kinds of things that were going on then that caused God to say, okay, now's the time? 
We've talked about this in brief in the last couple of years, uh, one time, I think. Uh, and so I'm just going to go quickly through three practical things that were set and, and prepared for before Jesus shows up on the planet that made it possible for the gospel to go all over the, uh, the, uh, the known world. The first one is the Roman road system. Do you know there were 50 kilometers, uh, 50,000 kilometers of Roman roads, which, was not, uh, which is unheard of in that time. In history, nobody had, you know, they were walking on paths going by, by ship and the water and so forth and all kinds of problems there. But for the first time, you could go almost all over the empire with the good news on a road system. And Paul did it, Barnabas did it, Silas did it, Timothy did it, Titus did it, Aquila and Priscilla did it, Apollos did it, all kinds of people did it. It took the gospel from that little place in Judea and went all over the place. Second thing that was, was in, 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 enacted practically in the, the uh, time when Jesus was born is the Pax Romana. Pax Romana is Latin. You can press your friends. It means the Roman peace. And it was a relative peace. It was a military peace. I mean, the Romans were still whacking people and hurt, hurting them hard when they rebelled against them. But, but, you know, especially out on the eastern empire where, uh, eastern part of the empire where Galilee and Judea are, you know, they were hitting people really hard. But because of that, nobody could rise up against the Romans. So there was a relative peace and they were in control. Yes, they had to go up and fight the Goths and the Gauls for every spring. And they did that for about 300 years. And then the Gauls beat them. But that was 300 years later. And, and, he, and it, this was sort of a relative piece, which means that Roman citizens, and like Paul, could go all over the place and bring the gospel. Isn't that interesting? Perfect timing there. But finally, there was a language that everybody pretty well knew. And the reason that everybody pretty well knew it is back in the 300s BC, a guy by the name of Alexander the Great had conquered all the known world all the way into Africa and across into Persia. And when he came to the end of it, he was only 30 years old. He said, I've conquered everything now. I'm kind of bored. And he died at 33. But before he died, he said, hey, I want everybody in the empire to know how great I am. He was a Greek guy. I want everybody to know what a great Greek I am. So I, he instructed them to create a language using Greek that was a lower form of language that everybody could get, kind of like English, supposedly. <laughs> and spread all over the world, sort of a trade language. And guess what? They created one called Koine Greek. And guess what else? The Bible you have sitting in your lap, the New Testament was written in and translated from, the English was translated from Koine Greek. And it's gone all through, not only the empire, but it's gone through 2,000 years all the way down to us. Isn't that interesting? So you can kind of see how, practically speaking, that was God's perfect timing. Why? Because at the end of the Old Testament, when Malachi puts down his pen, none of that existed. And all of a sudden, here it is, 400 years later. It's perfect time, practically. But that's not the only thing. I haven't told you about this. There are a couple of other things, sociologically and culturally, that were happening in the Roman Empire and in uh, Judea and Galilee at the time that more and more as, as people are studying this stuff, they're starting to realize that more and more people are talking about this. Two things. The first one is this. The Greco-Roman gods, small g, because they're not real gods, the Greco-Roman gods were losing their grip. You, you know the Pantheon, you know Juno. I mean, we learned about the Greek ones uh, in Western civilization class, like if you went to college or high school before the year 1999, you probably had Western civilization class. But then history did a reset and nobody existed before 1999, so we don't teach it anymore. But anyway, 
we learned about the Greek pantheon, right? You know, Zeus and, and um, Zeus and you know, Hermes and Aphrodite and Mars and all that kind of stuff. And they're always fighting and sleeping with one another and hurling lightning bolts at one another. And all. Kind of whimsical, kind of goofy, but people actually believed in that for a while. And then the Romans thought it was so cool, and they really were jealous of the uh, Greeks because they just thought, those guys are so smart. I wish we were that smart. So they stole their pantheon and just gave them new names. Well, those gods were, quote-unquote, gods, starting to lose their grip because they weren't real. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> but they weren't real, and people were starting to get hungry for something. They're sick of following gods, you know, trying to explain why life went haywire because some god had a hissy fit. They were just sick of it. And they started getting hungry for something true and that was really real. Does anybody in the exhausted majority think that people are starting to want something that's really real today? But there's another thing that was happening sociologically. This particularly was for the Jewish part of the empire. And that is that the law of Moses had done its work all through the Old Testament. From Genesis chapter 3, when it was promised that God was going to set things right and reverse the power of sin by sending one to stomp on the head of Satan. Right on through Abraham, and the promise came through him all the way through the Old Testament. It's pointing, there's a Messiah coming, there's a Messiah coming, there's a Messiah coming. The book of Psalms, all the Psalms are pointing to a Messiah coming. The order of the books in the Old Testament, you've heard us talk about this before. The way the Hebrews, the, the Jewish people put the order of those books in the Older Testament. It's called the Tanakh. It all screams, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah. Well, by this time, people are going, okay, the Messiah is coming. Like, when? It was sort of like, you know, they'd seen a lot of conquerors and a lot of people they thought they were the Messiahs, like the Maccabees about 100 years before, but that didn't pan out so well because the Romans wiped them out. And so people were starting to say, when is the Messiah? And it's like God says, well, it's on my calendar. It's right now, now that you're prepared, now that the Scripture, the Old Testament, has prepared you for this New Testament. Now is the time. And you, be, you look at this and you study this and you look at the sociology and you begin to go, you know what, that's really what was happening. And you start to see also, not only is the timing perfect then, but you start to see some of the same things in our time and in our culture. And I think... That's why we want to understand that we should read our Bibles, because it's God's interpreting of history, of his story. And I haven't said this yet, because I haven't been up here for a couple weeks, but did you notice that right after Thanksgiving, love this book ended? I know you did, because everybody was, no, really, I, if, if you kind of fell off the wagon and you didn't, that's, that's just totally fine. All I'm saying is, get into a reading plan. It may take you uh, two years you know, three years, but just get into one steady. There's a cool thing in the, the YouVersion app, for example, that there's, a, there's another one that is written by this uh, the reading plan that's written by the same people that did love this book. It's called Eat This Book, and it goes through every verse of the Bible, and it does it in such a way that you can read it in a year, but here's the cool thing. If you aren't able to read all of that in one day and you skip a couple of days, you get to restart, you get to take your days and go back to where you are. So it might take you a near half, two years, but you're going through the whole thing. But here's the beautiful thing. This is, this is the way we kind of do the flyover. We get God's perspective on what he's up to in our lives and in our time. And I'm positive that's why Paul says this about set time had fully come. If you've seen the history, if you've seen what God's been doing in the law of Moses, if you've been seeing what he's doing sociologically in the world, it was the perfect time. And we're starting to get a whiff of some of that now in our time. 
I'm almost certain if, if Paul was here and sitting in the front row, and certainly the Apostle Paul, if he was here, he would sit in the front row. Actually, I don't know if he would or not, but it freaked me out. But if, if he was here, he would want us to know that, right? He would want us to know that, the, that God has a calendar and that he knows the best time and he knows the best time in our life because in this time, this is what he did. But God, but when the time a set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. So Paul is saying, I believe that the God of the universe was born of a woman. He's talking about the virgin birth here now, obviously. He actually believed it. This, this guy with all these degrees, you know, all these smart things on his wall. He, who is recognized as a a philosopher par excellence from the ancient world by even people that don't even believe in Jesus or the Bible. That guy believed that this was really real, that God came to earth in the form of a human being through a woman. That's not something to just kind of skip over from a guy like that. That's something to kind of put in our, our, our minds and our hearts and think about it, even if we hadn't thought about it for a long time. But he says, not only is born of a woman, but he was born under the law. What does that mean? Well, it means he was born under the Old Testament law. He was born under, um, you know, the Ten Commandments and those, the, 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 that moral law that God says, this is how you flourish in the world. Jesus was born under that, just like we are born under God's morality. He was born in, under that system, which was a good system. And Paul's not talking about Satan's twisting of the system. He's talking at this point about God's good system. And he's saying, Jesus was born under that just like you and I are born under that. And you go, well, what's the significance of that? Well, here's the significance of that. It, it explains a lot about why Jesus came. It explains, for example, a lot of the Old Testament prophecies that were given. Like one of the most famous ones that we trot out every Christmas time about Jesus from Isaiah chapter 9. A prophecy that was given, by the way, 700 and some years before Jesus shows up. So you can't just say, ah, it's a copy. And you can't decide when you're going to be born. So Jesus didn't, you know, put it on his calendar to be born that day, right? So, so the reality is, here's what that thing says. It says, for unto us a child is born, is promising a Messiah, for unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. What's that like? Well, there's this law. Governments have laws and so forth, right? What was Jesus doing when he was on that cross that we'll be remembering in a little bit when we do communion? He was shouldering all of our failures and breaking of God's law, wasn't he? I mean, that most poignant and emotional of moments on the cross and the, the cross story when you see Jesus looking up into heaven saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's he saying? He's saying God is looking the other way because all the sins of the world are on my shoulders. So he comes up underneath it and the government, the law is on his shoulders. Why? Because we couldn't pull it off. In fact, that's where Paul goes next. He says he was born under the law, but guess what? Guess who else was born under the law? to redeem those under the law. Let's talk about two words there. The first word is those. Who are the those? They're you and me. They're people who are just simply trying to say, God, what are you up to in my life? What, you know, I would love to have uh, you, know, uh, you in my life. And then he says, 
to redeem them. That, 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 that's why he came to take the government on his shoulders, to take the law on his shoulders. Why? Because we are all lawbreakers, right? We can't even keep our own laws. We impose laws on ourselves, right? I mean, we, every January we have laws that we impose on ourselves about exercising and dieting and so forth. March rolls around, we've broken our law. Or, or we have laws about, you know, how I'm going to parent. I'm going to be different. I'm going to do better than my parents did. And we break the law. Or how we're going to do relationships or how we're going to do marriage. We are all law breakers. And we know, I mean, even if we don't admit that, we know that we're breakers of the government's laws. For example, there's, there's speeding laws. And I've never been, I've never broken that law, but probably you have. I have a lot of police officers in my church family here. Um, no, they, they all understand that too. We talk about that. But, um, I mean, we don't talk on the side of the road about that. <laughs> but every once in a while, you look in the back of the rear view mirror and somebody's reminding you, but you broke uh, the government's law. And we agree with that law, right? Nobody wants insanity and chaos like they have in the state of Washington in our neighborhood. We want to have some, you know, laws but we still break them. And here's what happens. Every time you break a law, whether it's your law or the government's law, there's a debt-debtor relationship, isn't there? You owe the establisher of that law. That's why we feel so stinking guilty about having that cream puff on February. It's because we broke our law and we kind of owe. There's something to pay. There's got to be somebody to pay. And when you break the speed laws, you have to pay the government. There's somebody to pay. And here's the thing. That makes total sense that we have broken God's law. But the problem is, there is no way that we can pay what we owe. There's no way we can pay that debt. So what Paul is talking about is when Jesus came and he died on that cross and he broke his body for us, as he says, uh, when he tells us to remember the Lord's Supper, and when he shed his blood for our sin, which represents life, giving us his life, he did it to redeem those under the law who could never, ever pay back the God whom they had violated. And he offered us, therefore, forgiveness. And we're free and clear. We're clean, which is awesome in itself, right? It's enough. But it's, it, it would be enough to be a Christian just for that. But Paul wants us to know that's not all there is. Because that's kind of legal, right? It's kind of God and Jesus being the judge and the jury, and it's like the judge looks over the, the dies and he goes, okay, all right, you're free, but I'm never going to see you in my courtroom again. I mean, you could have a judge like that, right? I've heard stories about that. And, and you could have somebody, but it's a legal transactional thing, but there's no relationship to it because you never see that judge again. And what Paul is trying to tell us in this next thing that he says is that God has a higher purpose. He, if you get up on his plane and just see even a little bit, you can see that it is so much more than that. Yes, it's forgiveness of sins. Thank you, God. Yes, it's healing from sin. Yes, thank you, God. It's healing of relationship, all that. Yes, it is. But there's something more. And so Paul finishes it off in verse 5 this way. When Jesus was born of a woman to redeem those under the law, that they might receive adoption to sonship. It's not good enough that we just get freedom from our sin. He wants a relationship. 
you know? Because we do break the laws, and we can't go back and pay for them. We can't go back and, you know, and do the right thing with our parents that we should have been kinder to. We can't go back to the kids in that first marriage and be the parents, the mom and the dad we should have been to them. We can't do any of that. We can't go back. But God makes a way to forgive us for that. But that's not enough. He says, I don't want you just walking away. I want you in my family. And see, for you and me, that's a little, this is a little bit different. Because in our world, we talk about adoption. And it's a good thing, by the way. We should have more Christians adopting, by the way. Um, we think of little cute babies. Little sweet baby. Who wouldn't want to adopt that sweet little baby until you've been up with them all night in the middle of the night? That changes things. But, you know, it's just, it's just a sweet little thing, right? But in Paul's world, that's not what it was. Not at all. Not even close. Because see, as Paul's reading this, or writing this, he's trying to think, well, i got to communicate to these people the kind of relationship that God has ushered into through Jesus by sending Jesus on earth. Because it brings it full circle back to getting up there in the higher plane, seeing what God's up to and what it means for us in life in the weeds. And what he comes up with is the image of adoption in those days. And what you need to understand from adoption in the Roman world, and the Roman Jewish world of that time, nobody adopted babies or children in those days. It rarely happened, but almost nobody. And the Jewish people had a whole different way of taking care of parentless children. But in the Roman world, you didn't adopt anybody until they were fully adults. You know why? Because if you had power, you had prestige, you had wealth, you're looking at those toddlers that are going through the twosomes and you're going to the three, you know, the three nagers you got running around. You're not sure you're going to be able to trust them with your stuff or your power or your prestige. You want something to kind of look like what you want it to look like, so you waited to adopt people until they were older. For example, one of the most famous Caesars, the first Caesar, Julius Caesar, when he was assassinated in Rome in a couple of decades before Jesus was born in, in B.C., he, he, uh, had, they opened up his will, and they found out that he had adopted a 19-year-old military commander who was his nephew, a guy by the name of Octavian. So Octavian's out on the military battlefield. He's just won a big, big battle and it's a great thing. And he's, he's coming back through the towns and everybody's going, Octavian, you're great, you're great, great. And he's only 19 years old. Somebody comes running up to him and says, hey, hey, Caesar's been assassinated. And he goes, oh, no. He goes, no, no, no. You don't understand. You're the new Caesar. You've been adopted. I was? Yeah, you were adopted by Caesar. So he goes to Rome and he has a civil war he has to deal with after that. But he becomes Caesar and he becomes known as the greatest Caesar of all, a guy by the name of Augustus, who is a footnote, by the way, in Jesus' story of his birth in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. But at that time, he was the greatest person in the known world. And so uh, Augustus was looking around and realizing, hey, this happened with, with my quote-unquote father, Julius. I'd better figure this out. So he looks and sees that he only has a daughter uh, by birth, and so he, he, he adopts her, her children as well. And, and, and then he's looking around, and he's, he's, they're pretty young. He's not quite sure. So he looks at the son of one of his wife, his wife, who had an earlier marriage and had a son by that earlier marriage. She, he looks at this guy. His name's Tiberius, and he, makes, he adopts Tiberius, who he became a Caesar too. But, but the weird thing about Tiberius is he was 40 years old. What would it be? That'd be like tucking that guy in. You want a drink of water? I mean, 
Kind of weird. But that's not where the weirdness ends. Augustus decides, this is just a little factoid, it's not going to change your life, but Augustus decides, you know, that's not enough. I just want to be safe. I want, if I die and my wife's still living, I'm going to adopt her too so she can inherit my wealth and health, Tiberius, get it done. What would that be like, reading my will? Oh, by the way, Ben, you've got a sister, and it's your mom, yeah? I mean, what Paul's trying to say is they went to all kinds of antics, all kinds of ways in this adoption. It was not an easy process. It took a long time, and it was, it was difficult and so forth. And what I'm trying to say is if you're a person of great wealth or political power, I'm open for adoption. I just want to, that's not, that was really taking you somewhere you don't need to go. But here's, here's the thing. Look, at there's five parameters to Roman adoption. When Paul pulls it out of his head and puts it down and says, that's what God's doing for you. Look at the relationship here. All debts were canceled. That's the forgiveness, the redemption part. All criminal charges were dropped. You could not be legally put to death by your father, your new father, which was good if you were Caesar's son. You could not be disinherited by your new father. But look at this. In legal terms, you were a completely new person. And now you know why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, those who are in Christ are completely new creatures. They are new persons. They are not the same. The old is gone. The new has come. Isn't that something? That's the depth of the relationship that you and I have, all because Jesus came in the form of that little baby in Bethlehem at the time that it was fully set and at just the right time. So what Paul is saying here, and when he writes this to all his adult, you know, teenage, um, elderly, young people, audience, is that you may not have any right in this world to be adopted or to be loved by people with power and means and prestige, but the God of the universe says you can be by him. You don't deserve it from anywhere else. But people like you and me and the exhausted majority, we have something far richer and far better than we could ever have. And if people were taking notes in Galatia at the time when this thing came through, it's like they dropped their pen like, huh? That's exactly how they felt. And I'm hoping that that's exactly as we get up above the weeds and look out, that's exactly how you, if you are a Jesus follower, know and feel and it goes straight to your heart and it changes and it enhances and it takes you places in your relationship with God that has never happened before. And if you're not, if you're not a person who has accepted Christ and you just say, no, nah, I'm not sure it's for me, um, you, uh, you need to know the invitation is open to you to be that person. And as we go to communion today, I want us all to pray. If you're a person who's, you know, not a Christian yet, that's perfectly, this is the greatest place to be for you because nobody's going to look weird at you if you don't get up to the tables that are in the four corners. Um, and, uh, you know, you can just sit there and pray and say, God, I would like that. If this is for real, would you just show me? But for the rest of us, I'm asking you to go and say, God, take me to that plane to see what's really real about this and drive this into my heart. And, and I'm going to ask the band to come out here and just want you to think about this one more thing. If you are a Jesus follower, it is apparent to me from scriptures like this, and as I read the scriptures throughout history, and as I read Christian history or just history history for the last 2,000 years, every time 
God like sent his spirit in the Great Awakening or the Graham Crusades in 49 or the Second Great Awakening or the Reformation or whatever it is, it comes at a time when people are just tired of the status quo. They're just tired of the old religion, the old system, the old thing that has been beating their brains out. And God says, okay, now. And he sends the spirit of his son into this world, just like he sent his son in his totality into this world the first time. Just ask yourself and maybe ask God, God, did you, with all the stuff I've been wrestling with, did you put me here in Portland for just such a time as this? Did you put me in this family and in this church with my friends for just this moment? That, I think, is the kind of possibility and the kind of vision that Paul is trying to pick us up by the nap of the shirt and pull us up above and say, see, that's what God is doing for you and for me. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask you to pray as you go to communion and go to the stations and um, take communion today. But just would you just ask God, God, show me what it means that I'm your child. Show me what it means that I have been adopted into your family, undeserving and all of the other things. And be sure to thank him, of course, for what he's done for dying on the cross for your sins because that's why we're doing this. But that made the whole adoption thing possible. The redemption makes the adoption possible and it's, it's automatic. That's exactly what God is going for. You don't have one without the other. My Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that at the perfect time you sent your son Jesus into our lives. And with all the things that we surround it with, with the, the romanticized manger scenes and all of those other things and the Christmas music, some of which is kind of funny, don't let us lose sight of what's really going on here. Not just in that time, but in our time. In these days that you haven't gone AWOL, that you've still got a calendar, and you still have sent your son into this world to redeem those who are under the burden of things they cannot redeem themselves from, and to bring us into your family and to love us in a way that makes us brand new people. I thank you that I get to be a part of that in this church, in this gathering of your saints. And may you use this time of communion. May you be honored by it, first of all. But may you use it to lift us up out of the weeds and see what you're really up to in our lives. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for coming again, for coming the first time, and for being here today. It's in your name we pray. We love you. Amen.